Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me is a hymn that was first, first sung, historians think, on January 1st, 1773. It was a prayer meeting at a little Anglican church in the village of Olney in Buckinghamshire in the United Kingdom. The original title of this text, this poem really, is Faith's Review and Expectation. And one of the great ironies of Amazing Grace is that although it was written by an Anglican priest for a Church of England congregation, it was almost entirely dismissed and forgotten by Anglicans and Episcopalians, both in Britain and America. One, one British music historian wrote that Newton's text is an example of an unashamedly middle-brow lyricist writing for a low-brow congregation. <laughs> that is, my friends, Anglican snobbery at its finest. He, uh, he's not entirely wrong, though. The congregation for which this hymn was written in Olney was mostly made up of day laborers and factory workers. The, the primary industry in Olney was lace-making. Most of the inhabitants were illiterate. And John Newton, the priest in the Olney church who wrote this hymn, had been a notoriously debauched sailor. He operated in the slave trade for many years. He was a black sheep in the genteel establishment church, and his evangelical message, this, this testimony, really, that Amazing Grace records, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see, that was a message that, that resonated with a lot of people among the lower classes in Olney, but tended to offend the delicate sensibilities of the upper-class church hierarchy with its simplistic insistence on the saving grace of Christ. This is a hymn that was mostly forgotten in England, but evangelical Brits took it across the sea, and during the second great American awakening in the early 19th century, Amazing Grace was finally set to the music that we all know became a, a staple of American hymnody. And Episcopalians took a little bit of time to warm to this one, but the Baptists and the Methodists and the backwoods revival frontier preachers took to it immediately. African-American churches embraced it as one of their own. They added that final verse that we sang when we'd been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun. That's not John Newton. That's the African-American church that added that. Union and Confederate soldiers sang this hymn as they buried their dead. White settlers sang it as they journeyed westward across the plains. Cherokee women and men sang it to their children on the trail of tears. Billy Sunday and Billy Graham used it in revivalist crusades. Judy Collins sang it to protest the Vietnam War. Mahalia Jackson and Fannie Lou Hammer sang it to protect civil rights protesters from police and dogs. Left and right, conservative and progressive, Amazing Grace has become the American hymn, the song everybody knows, the song that seems to cut through whatever division and enmity we're facing and makes us all weep at funerals. And I tell you, that has got to be the music, because this text is about as rigidly orthodox as any evangelical sermon I've ever heard. Amazing Grace might as well be a musical setting of John 3.16, this, this famous verse, the most famous verse in the whole Bible, the one that we heard read this morning. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. That verse either fills your heart with gladness and affection or it makes you scrunch down a little bit in your seat whenever you hear it. On the surface, that's a verse that's all about God's love, right? God so loved the world. God gave his son. But if you're like me and you learned John 3.16 in an evangelical Sunday school, the subtext that you picked up was a little bit different. What we heard was God so hated the world that God killed God's only son, and whoever doesn't believe that is headed to H-E double hockey sticks, right? John 3.16 
may seem to be about love, but I learned it as a verse of exclusion, right? If you didn't believe in Jesus, like, sayonara, sucker, we're done with you. There is, there is probably not a better, ver- a better known verse in, in American Christianity than John 3.16. I venture to suggest that there is not a more divisive verse than John 3.16 because of this way that it's been used to set up this whole kind of theological system, right? Christianity in a nutshell, that's all about sin and salvation. American Christians did not make that system up. Luther and Calvin and a bunch of other 16th century reformers made great hay of grace versus works and this, this radical insistence on God's amazing grace, which is actually, I think, a beautiful idea at the outset. But it quickly became, over the years, a kind of dividing line that separated out the sheep from the goats, right? And true Christians were the ones who had prayed the sinner's prayer, experienced God's grace, and had turned from their dark deeds. The darker the better, right? Frankly, the more that you smoked and drank and fornicated before you were saved, the more satisfying we found your confession when you made it. We were, you know, we were kind of listening for what Paul is talking about in the letter to the Ephesians, right? What you heard from Bob this morning. It's not what was printed in your bulletins. That is totally my fault. I proofed the bulletin this week and missed the fact that what, what you saw in your bulletins was not Ephesians 2, 1 through 8, but you heard it. Bob read it, right? Paul says, all of us once lived in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of flesh and senses, but God, who is rich in mercy, this is that conversion moment, right? God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. And then Paul says, by grace, you have been saved. By grace, you have been saved. That is the Reformation slogan. You can't earn it, can't buy it. Salvation comes, for, comes to you unbidden, unlooked for. It's amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saves wretches exactly like we are. And it didn't take long for that that moment of conversion, right, that beautiful hinge point, to become a kind of pious work, right? It became something that it was your job to make happen. You were supposed to acknowledge and confess how horrible you were. It's up to you to make that decision. Make a decision for Christ. Give your life to Jesus. Accept him as your savior. And salvation then in this evangelical system became actually, ironically, the thing that the reformers were crusading against. Salvation became a spiritual work, became something that you had to do in order to earn your way into heaven. Conversion became not a description of what happens to you when God's grace finds you. It became a prescription for all the stuff that you're supposed to do in order to get saved. And so American Christians became obsessed with belief rather than grace. Do you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead? Do you believe that Jesus saves you from your sins? John 3.16 started showing up at football games with a rainbow Afro-wigged guy carrying signs. It showed up on a highway billboards, right? I think when you take I-5 up to Seattle, you still see John 3.16 there on the sign. It became this litmus test to determine whether or not you were a real Christian or just a heathen pretending to be Christian. And we knew who the heathens were, right? They were the Episcopalians. They were you guys. And so... And so by the time the 70s and the 80s came around, you have the situation where a good little evangelical Christian boy like me starts to wonder if, like, there's something, something wrong with me because I've never had this conversion experience that seems to define salvation for everybody else. I remember sitting in church on Sunday nights during hymn sings, and, you know, people would stand up and they'd give their testimony. They'd talk about what a horrible sinner they used to be before they got saved, and then Jesus changed their life. I, I remember watching baptisms happen, right, in the dunk tank in our church, sometimes 
sometimes by the, by the riverbanks in the summer. And as I got older, it started to be like, like people I knew, my friends, other kids in my high school who were getting baptized because they'd gone to church camp one summer and you know, after a, a lifetime, a year, of smoking and drinking and all the other stuff that they were doing, they were turning from, they were confessing it, right? They were being cleansed from their sins. And there I'm sitting, right, a good little, a good little pastor's kid who never really got a fair chance at being a sinner, right? I mean, I'd, I'd never... <laughs> I'd never known life outside of the church. I was a good Sunday school kid who wore a little suit and tie to church. I wondered if I'm missing something, right? Like, am I, am I doing something wrong? Am I supposed to feel something? Because I've never had this moment of amazing grace where I realized what a horrible, wretched sinner I am and how badly I need God's forgiveness, right? I was pretty well behaved most of the time. I did have, you know, deep and dark sins to confess, and they were mostly about how, like, I had a huge crush on the boy who was baptized last week, and I was not about to talk about that in front of the entire church. I knew that was not going to go well. And it honestly was, you know, was not really something that I wanted to repent of. I thought, it, I mean, I kind of liked it. He was cute, you know. So I faked it, right? I faked it. I never, I didn't get baptized until I was 20 years old and nobody ever asked me, right? They just assumed this kid's been saved. And I'm sitting there thinking like, I don't, I don't know if I have been or not, but I'm just going to let this one slide and not make any waves, right? Like we all know how to fake piety and there was no better place to do it. But I still wanted to then, and to a degree still want to now, figure out a way to claim this verse. I want to find a way to say, for God so loved the world that God gave God's only Son, so that whoever believes in Him might not perish but have eternal life. I want to say that in a way that rings true for me. I mean, there are a million things that we could say about those 26 words and the ways in which they've been yanked out of their context and made to say exactly the opposite of what Jesus is saying here. And it's taken me like 20 years of wrestling. I am not willing to let this identity that I was handed as an evangelical Christian, somebody, you know, shaped and formed in this particular way of understanding the Christian message, I'm not willing to let that go. I want to figure out a way for the, that whatever salvation looks like, right? Like, it is actually something that I can experience for myself in my life. Not by dint of working really hard and being really good and earning heavenly brownie points, right? Salvation as this experience of God's healing and God's power comes as grace. That's what I was taught. And I believe that to be true. This amazing grace, this mercy and love that grabs me exactly where I am. It does not wait for me to change. It starts working this deep magic in the darkest places of my heart and transforms me from the inside out. I want to believe what I was taught, not that having right opinions about Jesus can save me, but that there is a relationship of trust and fidelity on offer, what the ancients call living by faith, and that that relationship of faith or faithfulness can change my life. I am not willing to cede the evangelical message to those who would use it to abuse and divide and shame. That is not how I understand Jesus. That's not how I understand what the church is supposed to be about. I want to say, you know, you actually can be an evangelical Episcopalian. Actually, maybe that's what the world needs right now. People who are not afraid of that evangelical message that prioritizes God's amazing grace, but also have impeccable taste in altar linen. Like... <laughs> Sign me up for that. That is a world I want to live in. So here, here is what I think this verse means. John 3.16, right? Love it or hate it, it's there. It's huge in our culture. 
We've got to figure out what we think about this verse. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, right? He's talking to this Jewish teacher, this scholar who knows Hebrew scripture backwards and forwards. So Jesus like leans on the Hebrew tradition that they share, right? This is a shared text for them. Jesus reminds Nicodemus about this story that we heard from Numbers, Moses and the snake. And Jesus says, just like Moses lifted that snake up in the wilderness, so will the Son of Man be lifted up so that everyone who looks at him will experience salvation in the way that the ancient people experienced salvation in the wilderness. And what those people in the wilderness experienced was not like, you know, confessing their sins and some mystical, you know, theological experience. It was being healed of their snake bite, right? Like it was that, that's what salvation looks like in numbers. There's nothing grand and theological. It's physical healing, being healed of the stuff that was hurting them. I mean, maybe you want to call that sin, fine. I want to call it suffering, Right? There is a heck of a lot of suffering all around us, then and now. And Jesus tells Nicodemus, God sent me to be this snake on a pole, transforming suffering from the inside out so that it's actually the very thing that bites you that becomes the thing to save you. Jesus says that's the system, right? that's the plan, that's the way that God so loves the world, the universe, the cosmos. God loves the world by sending a snake that can heal me so that when I am bitten, I don't have to perish in my pain, but I can look up at that snake hanging on a cross, the emblem of suffering and shame, the ugliest thing I can imagine, and experience in that relationship a kind of healing that only the one who made me can offer me. I mean, there's not a question of like mental gymnastics here, right? There's no praying a sinner's prayer. There's no giving my heart to Jesus, right? There is a shift in orientation, right? As opposed to turning away, neglecting, trying to hide my suffering, I choose to encounter it honestly. I put myself in proximity to the suffering one and this relationship of love and trust that has power to save my life. And as I learn that pattern, as I practice that turning, that conversion, if you like, I begin to experience this thing that transforms me from the inside out. That is what eternal life means. Eternal life is a crappy translation of what is a beautiful Hebrew and Greek idea. The life of the age is what Jesus is talking about here. It's got nothing to do with heaven. It's got everything to do with grace. It's this amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saves a wretch like me. This hymn, when I hear it, right, like, it still moves something in me. And not just amazing grace, right? These hymns that, that we grow up with, that have horrible theology, um, and that do something to us. Like, that's what I'm interested in. It doesn't seem to matter, like, who you are, where you come from, what triggers you carry from whatever religious background you got or didn't get as a young child. There's something that seems hardwired, maybe just in Americans, I don't know, that when we hear the strains of this beloved hymn, it connects us to something that goes way deep in us as individuals, but also as a, as a people. I mean, I see this at funerals, right, regularly. You can take the, you know, most hardened and, and angry of mourning families, you put them through a few verses of amazing grace, and something breaks open. It is remarkable. Hearts of, of love and vulnerability and suffering and pain are addressed somehow, are given space through the power of this music, this, I mean, super evangelically music that somehow transcends party politics and church labels. And when it works, it gives us this glimpse of what Jesus calls the life of the age, the life of the eon, the life of eternity, eternal life. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come.
His grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Grace will lead me home.